In this episode, you will meet Charles Eaton. He is CEO of Creating IT Futures, which is a national workforce nonprofit and vice president of CompTIA, a global trade association for the IT industry. He's also my boss and he champions people and is one of my earliest podcast supporters. And he's someone who reminded me at a time when I needed to hear it, that no one is better than you. And he means that of all people, that we are no less or better than anyone else. And that's something I can certainly appreciate. In this episode, he shares his experience growing up as a son of a U.S. diplomat and his life in Hong Kong and his earlier years, as well as his life now in Washington, D.C., leading a national workforce nonprofit and helping adults get check jobs in the IT industry and helping young people discover their potential in technology. What I hope you get from his story is three things. One, the significance of looking outside of our own perspective and how that can provide clarity and insight. Two, that there are great CEOs out there, CEOs that really care, really lead, and really share. And three, and most importantly, that you know as a listener that more options exist in the training and education space, and specifically in the technical education space, and that there are nonprofit groups and people out there that want to help and that can help. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Tuesdays with Andrea. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan. And today we have a special guest, Charles Eaton. He is Creating IT Futures CEO and also Executive Vice President of CompTIA, the voice of the IT industry. I'm going to go ahead and read you guys his bio before we get started, and then we'll welcome him into the show. Charles Eaton is father to four children, ranging from elementary school to working adults, and leads philanthropic endeavors for CompTIA, the world's largest IT trade association. As the CEO of Creating IT Futures, he leads CompTIA's IT workforce charity, which enables people to improve their lives through employment in the IT industry. Charles joined CompTIA in June 2010 and has 23 years of nonprofit management experience. Prior to joining CompTIA, he was responsible for fundraising, business development, and marketing for the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, a growing healthcare association focused on improving healthcare quality and outpatient safety. Before joining APIC, Eaton was Vice President of Member Relations for the Computer Technology Association, which organizes the largest trade show in North America, the International Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Eaton graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English from Duke University. 
Welcome to the show, Charles. Good to see you, Andrea. What a background there. You have a life. That is yeah, this is funny. It's funny. The uh, epidemiology infection control stuff is popping up a whole lot as people ask me a ton of questions uh, about that uh, three years I was there. Can you imagine if you still work there right now? Oh, I know. We went through uh, a swine flu uh, 2009 H1N1. Uh-huh. And boy, that was a whole lot. And I actually found some of the old uh, stuff that we had produced during that time. Uh, but now this is just, yeah, a, a level far beyond what we experienced during that uh, period. This is still so new. It's hard to believe it's actually happening right now. Yeah, I think that's the thing is as much as warnings as people give. And I think if you look back, you know, Bill Gates has been talking about pandemics. A lot of people have been talking about this. Um, but it's always more difficult when it actually happens because, you know, it's hard. There's a lot of things you could plan for in life, right? And, and we don't spend a lot of the money because it's, uh, it's insurance, right? And basically at that point, and you don't really want to invest so much in that, that you can't do other things. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the trade-offs that we make. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, from a healthcare standpoint, infections are always a problem, especially in hospitals, and they're working so hard to prevent those. But you get something like this, which hits the general population, you know, it's not something you necessarily require in a hospital. But, you know, once you're in a hospital, how are they you know, cleaning everything? And, and apparently, you know, now, like, elective surgeries were called off in most states. Mm-hmm. It's just it really upended healthcare altogether. So I, I feel there's a lot of fantastic people in healthcare. I got to know many of them and the infection control professionals, especially Mm -hmm. uh, keeping an eye on how how that's happening in a hospital, what the best practices are. I mean, there was so much science going into all of that. You know, I've seen Clorox wipes uh, working at the Clorox, you know, uh, uh, facility in Oakland, like explaining how their fabric worked and that scientists. I mean, you would believe the level of science behind just a wipe. And how to make it more effective. I've seen some some amazing things there. So it was a it was a great experience. Do you miss your time there at all? Yeah, I I, I miss healthcare in the sense of it was so important, so impactful. The thing that really drew me to uh, to make the switch over to creating IT futures in CompTIA was that I, I didn't know the people I was helping. Right? So I knew that we were stopping infections, but you would only really know on a national level. Like every 10 years, if the CDC did sort of a generalized study of the number of infections. So you didn't know the names of the people who didn't get an infection, right? And I, yeah. you know, that's just how it's supposed to be. I, I wanted something where I knew the names of the people I was helping. I yeah. wanted to, to, to have a real impact on individuals and, you know, hopefully get some big numbers eventually. But I really wanted that one-to-one connection with people. And, and this job has allowed me to do that. And that's actually one of the reasons why I asked you to be on the show, because so Charles is my CEO. I work within CompTIA, which uh, the Creating IT Futures charity is umbrellaed under. And so Charles leads this as, as well as all of our philanthropic effort. And one of the CEOs in, in my life that I'm grateful to work under, grateful to work with, and truly an advocate of people. I look at it from the lens of being a people's champion and advocating for having smart people work under you, having the ability to empower your workers, having the ability to create a culture that's responsible, that's impactful and effective, and looking at ways to grow the mission also while keeping the lens of we're here to help people and focusing on what's ours to do, what is truly the work that we carry that mantle to fulfill. And so having that focus and having that perspective, but always through the lens of people first, I think is important and significant. And I don't know of other people who do it quite 
better than you. <laughs> and you. so I wanted Thank to you. bring you on just to get your insight and to find out more about what makes you tick and to learn about you know your background. And I'm happy that you're here. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Okay. So then growing up, I know that you've had a different, unique upbringing, right? Grew up in Hong Kong, a diplomat's child and growing mm -hmm. up there, what was your early upbringing life and how did it change you? It never being settled, right? That was probably the most common theme of my early life. Uh, born in St. Louis, my parents were grad students at Washington University. We <clears throat> traveled then to Hong Kong. My dad got a teaching job. So his first job was in a university, Hong Kong University, a really terrific university there. And he was teaching sociology. So two and a half years old, uprooted, taken to Hong Kong. You know, we didn't have much money. We got housing and all of our stuff was lost in a shipment. It literally fell off of a ship, right? You hear these stories that sometimes containers embed waves can be knocked off if they're not tied down well enough. Apparently that's what happened. So we lost everything um, and had to kind of really start over there. Uh, and that sort of just defined the rest of my life. We moved every few years. Um, we came back to the States after five years in Hong Kong. Dad joined the State Department. And, uh, you know, so we were in DC for a couple of years and then back overseas, Taiwan, Malaysia. And then I graduated uh, high school, went all four years of high school in Hong Kong. Uh, so it was nice that we got back because Hong Kong was definitely our favorite place. I, I really loved uh, growing up in Malaysia at, uh, at the ages of uh, 13 and 14. That was a lot of fun, but uh, Hong Kong has a special place in my heart. So you were back and forth from U.S., Hong Kong, and then Malaysia, and then you ended up back in Hong Kong, right? Like, how does that work? Do you, I, I don't know the experience of growing up as, a, as an international child, mm -hmm. and I'm curious to understand how does that affect your nationality and how you feel about home being U.S. versus outside of the country? Yeah. You never quite uh, feel like you're part of something, right? You're a bit of an interloper because even when you're in a place like Hong Kong, right, you're, you're isolated. You were an American. And that time it was a British colony. So there's always that level of there's a difference between the locals and the British or the foreigners and uh, expatriates who came to work, live there. So, you know, while you, you call it your home, it's not the same, right? And I think this is true of anyone who spends any time, especially when they're young, you know, in another place like that. But I do identify as a Hong Konger, right? And that's funny. It wasn't an, a word that they used to describe yeah. us, right? We were, the people were in Hong Kong and, and they were Chinese or they were British. They were kind of what their ethnicity was, uh, to some degree. Yeah. And now since the handover back to China and there's a lot more Hong Kong nationalism, I would call it, uh, and people referring to themselves as Hong Kongers. Uh -huh. And I, I recently, I went back there this past summer. It's the first time I'd been there in, 30 years. And uh, you know, I had a reunion with some of my friends from high school, and I continue to see a bunch of the people from high school, especially in the last four years. And I think all of us have that identity. Like it, it's, uh, it's even more powerful now. We didn't appreciate it when we yeah. were younger, and now we really appreciate that. But I think it made me a better American too, because I certainly appreciate the things that we have as Americans, right? The mm -hmm. freedoms we have. I see all the warts, absolutely. But it made me sort of, you know, I think assess that and also living in other countries, traveling, you know, like I would like to pull in the best of those places, but I really like being an American. I wouldn't want to trade that. And of course, I haven't even moved since I moved to DC. I haven't moved anywhere. So it's like the opposite of the second half of my life has been the absolute opposite of the first half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, no living overseas, no living in another place, you know, 25, wait, let's see, I got here in 93. So 27 years living in the same metro area 
that seemed uh, improbable uh, when I was young. And I have many friends from high school who still travel and live in different places. You know, that's still part of who they are. But do you get yeah. that itch now or are you done with it? You're like, no, I've kind of seen. Yeah, I'm okay to be subtle because, you know, while it made me, and you ask like, what, what does that do to you? It's like, it made me very adaptable. Um, you know, I have no problem adapting was meeting people in school hard, uh, not probably as hard as it is like if you are coming and moving to a place where you don't have a whole lot of, uh, of friction, you know, not a whole lot of people leaving and going. Every one of these schools leaves and goes. If you had a friend who stayed there, like I had a handful who went to all 12 years of school uh, in the Hong Kong International School, that was pretty unusual. That was a handful of people who had that experience. So most people were in for two years, uh, four years, you know, and uh, it was very fluid. In fact, we can't even, when we think back, we can't even remember when someone came or when someone left. You know, like we have all these friends. It's like, wait, that person only, they, yeah. they were only there till 10th grade. Gosh, it feels like they were there for much longer. So that that's, uh, yeah, kind of one of the impressions that you get. So the other people that you meet, so are these all other students that have parents who are diplomats or ambassadors or country representatives? Are these all privileged background? Yeah. Uh, you boarding know, school? Taking, yeah, no, really rich, but, Charles. <laughs> no, uh, the, it was, okay, so anyone who knows, you're working for the State Department, you're not getting rich. So American diplomats are not by any stretch wealthy. They're paid just like every other federal government employee. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. It is not a job where people make much money. Even ambassadors are not paid that much money. You know, some of those ambassadors are appointed. Uh, and that's, you know, often political favors or, or whatever. But there's others who are career and the career folks, you know, I mean, you could just look at the scales, federal scales, you know what someone could cap out at, right? So you have to enjoy it because you want to serve your country and because it's a way to experience something very different, right? So it has a unique set of benefits. So I always say I was rich in experience, oh. <laughs> but we were never, we were never had any money. Now, the, the difference is in some places you go, you might have a lot of kids who are also diplomats. In Malaysia, there was about, there were more of those. In Hong Kong, that was not the case. We knew the only other people who were in the embassy, which was a very small number of kids, 90% of the kids' uh, parents were business people who had been, who were assigned to Hong Kong and were growing their business or doing something. So that's where you had a lot of people who, again, in the if they were in the US, they might have been doing okay. Over there, they got a free apartment, they got yeah. free maid, uh, they got a car, often it's with the a driver. Of the job. Right. And, yep. And they had access to yachts. Yeah. So I used to I hang mean, out with people. That's a pretty good life. Who had a, yeah, I know, right? Exactly. You come back to the States, you don't have any of them. Sure, wait, what government was this? <laughs> it was yeah. And but that's the business people, right? The diplomats all depends on the country. You know, the US you don't get any perks. You know, no no drivers, no maids, none of that, right? And in the apartment building we lived in my senior year of high school, the government pays for the apartment and pays for the schooling, which in Hong Kong both of those were expensive. But um my dad had an old used Honda and it was very old and it was the trashiest car in the entire building. Like because everyone else living in our building was was local Chinese and they all had Rolls Royces, Mercedes, um oh, you, you were, know, like Oh, so you were rich, poor. Yes, exactly. I was like, oh, we, we, were, we were fake rich, you know. Fake rich. Um, right. But the business people, you know, again, they had more of those perks, but they come back to the States and that all goes away. So a lot of them wanted to stay over, you know. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. Would you consider or advocate for any of your children becoming diplomats in the future? 
I don't know. Um, the government service is very different than it used to be. And, you know, I, I, it could be interesting for them because they didn't experience it. Um, and I would say it's, it's mind opening. So yeah, that could be something they would do. It was an obvious thought that I would do that. But I was like, no, I feel like I did it with my dad already. And it's hard on families. It definitely is. But if you have a good attitude, right, you come out of it, and you see the positives. Uh, with everything that you're able to do and see. So you came back after high school to go to call to Duke, correct? Mm, yep, right, exactly. So I went right from there to to Duke. And, and uh, was that hard? Was that a hard adjustment to acclimate back to like U.S. culture? Oh yeah. I, I first of all, I was like, where are all the the Chinese people? Right, like it was <laughs> such. I was not used to being uh, a majority, a racial majority. Um, now, admittedly, you know, living the life of, of, you know, some level of privilege, right? You're really not a minority when you're a minority in those countries, mm-hmm. you know, because there's just a, you know, it, you're yeah. still an American, right? And that has its own uh, set of privileges. But I was constantly feeling like it was very weird that there were not more people who look like the people I'd been around for the last eight years of my life. They would have been, you know, Chinese or Malay. So, you know, I found people who, had lived overseas or one of my best friends to this day is Indian, uh, who we met at the end of our freshman year because I gravitate towards yeah, those you're like, people I'm who find have you. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we actually, it's funny. I got to school and about a week later, two guys had found me who were in sixth grade with me in Taiwan. Were I was only in sixth grade. Yeah, they were at Duke. So it was just kind of funny how you do gravitate towards that. And then ultimately, you know, you, everyone, you assimilate. Right. Yeah. And you figure out you know, who your friends are going to be. But again, I've always had that, you know, people who have lived overseas or experienced that it's a, it's a certain club that you're in and kind of laugh about a lot of things that other people wouldn't understand. So what's something about U.S. culture that we could improve? Mm, boy. Okay. That's a, that was, that's a good one. Um, things is just this. We're so sports obsessed that yeah. I actually wasn't a sports obsessed person. I played sports, but I was, you know, it's like not a big deal. I was a runner as well. And, and, you know, we didn't have American football or any of that. I, since I got back and it's certainly because going to Duke, you know, basketball is like a second degree that you have to major in there, <laughs> but I became sports obsessed. Um, and so I was like one of those funny shifts that like it, it if I'd grown up you now with the guy. internet, yeah, I became that guy, right? If I'd grown up over there with the internet, I don't know how things would have been different, but I was so isolated. You could barely get any news about anything. So, you know, you couldn't follow along. You couldn't watch games. Now, mm-hmm. if you lived in Hong Kong, I could probably watch almost everything I'd want to watch over here. I could probably access, if not, you know, delayed or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that, that shifted for me. And again, I just appreciated the freedoms that we have. I was going to China when at the time when it had not developed all that much. And we went to places where, you know, people were living in mud huts and that was the norm in those rural areas. You notice poverty in Asia even more than you notice here because it looks different and you have to get out of your head that that poverty is the real poverty of what we face here in America isn't. No, no way. This is still extremely real. It just doesn't look the same. So even though you know we've gotten past that, we still have poverty. Infecting so many communities is still a big problem. And this is true of the work I do now. I just feel like there's a lot of work to do in America. We have so much that we can improve, but we have such great promise, mm-hmm. and, and we always have. And you know, we're always on a journey to fulfill it. One of the things about international travel is the ability to see our world through a larger lens and realize that it doesn't just stop here 
or the life in front of us isn't the only life that exists. And so being able to have that larger perspective is very important. And not a lot of people get that. You know, a lot of people that I knew from growing up, depending on which city it was, never left the state. Now, I think the internet does a great job of opening that up for people. Mm-hmm. You can get a lens and, and get some some visualization there. But being able to see and understand, but more importantly, connect to and relate to another culture is hugely important, especially for Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most Americans, you know, a number of years ago, most Americans didn't have a passport. I think now with Canada, Mexico, Caribbean needing it, probably more Americans have them, but uh, you know nothing. Nothing is better than visiting a country and, and seeing how people live. Above that, certainly is living there. Yeah, and then really living there, right? Really? Like truly integrating yourself. Because as a kid, you know, I was in a bubble. You know, people ask me these questions like, "Oh, did you do this kind of stuff?" And I was like, "No, I was worried about like school and girls and hanging out with my friends." Right? You don't think of this as like, "Oh, I have I have a privileged moment now. I must absorb all of this because you know I'm so <laughs> lucky to be." You know, no, you're, you're just a kid. It's a right? kid. You're, yeah, and you're a kid. You. Their job took you overseas. So, you know, but yeah, if you get a chance, you know, people have a chance to do that stuff. It is, it is a game changer. Absolutely. And maybe perhaps one of the reasons why I think you're so open-minded or at least have that ability to see more than one side, see it from different angles. I think that's a a huge benefit there. How did your career start after school? Mm -hmm. So, uh, was an English major in school. And I really thought when I first went into that area that maybe I'd be a professor, you know, because like a lot of people I really uh, enjoyed in high school were people who had their PhDs in their field. So I was very lucky my school, because being overseas, it attracted some really high caliber teachers who had PhDs in their field. And this uh, gentleman, Jack Penna, he really influenced me. And, you know, he was my English teacher, my creative writing teacher. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to do that. My mom uh, was a drama major. So she really influenced that. And my dad was just very well read. So it seemed like, okay, that was a reasonable thing to do. And then by the time I got to my senior year, I worked in the English department at Duke as my work study job. And I realized, wow, it's just, it's the same stuff everywhere. No matter what it is, the business, you've got internal politics, you've got jockeying for position and money, right? All that stuff. And yeah. I, I just couldn't imagine my myself doing that in that environment. I just wanted to go try something different. So I took the first job I could find. It was like only a couple companies came to recruit it to for non-economics or business majors or anything like that, right? And that was or science majors. And that was two department store chains. <laughs> so they were like two of the biggest, like so it was Saks Fifth Avenue, which is not one of the biggest, but most prominent. And then a group called May Department Stores. They had Hex Department Stores in the East Coast. There's about 43 of those. And so they were looking for buyers. You know, people would work in their corporate offices who would be, you know, buying the products and services and moving them from place to place and all that kind of stuff. But I'm like, that's an analytical job. I'm really analytical. I happen to choose English, but I was, you know, analytical in, in other regards. And I ended up getting offers from both places and took the one in, in uh, Hex because it was in DC and I could convince more of my friends to move to DC 
than I could to go to New York City. So I got that job in like December of my senior year. So then the last part of my senior year was just a joke. I was I'm done. I'm done. I took an underload. I actually had the dean laugh at me. You were done. You already did what you had to do. You already had to yeah. I did. Got got the job, right? I'm on track to graduate. So I just so I took like two PE classes and and then a self-study or independent study in screenwriting and then a a film class. It was really lame. It was embarrassing. Wait, did you like the screenwriting class? I did. I often thought I would want to be a screenwriter, but then I, I've realized over time I'm I'm either too happy or I'm not introspective enough that I don't have anything I want to say. I don't. I can't put it all down. I can't get my thoughts uh, cohesive enough, and I don't want to write anything lousy. So I I don't have anything to say. You know, I, I think the work I do is 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 the right work for me now. Yeah. But I did think for a while that that was who I was going to be, and and I think I've now found you know over time what I'm better at. Yeah. But yeah, that's so I started in business, and then I realized once I got into that a big company just wasn't for me right i just couldn't see i couldn't see the future of retail i think i was right on that one i, uh-huh. I, I saw that there was it was definitely going to change a lot uh, over time and that uh, the corporate roles would be reduced as they you know really minimize the overhead they had and really focus more on the stores but the corporate level is going to get smaller and and i just wanted to go and do something that felt more meaningful you know where i felt i could have an impact and so got a job in a, with an association dealing with business intelligence and and then was able to parlay the experience there, which I got free reign to do so many things. It was like the perfect job for someone in their 20s. Nothing had been done. Didn't have a huge history. You can do all these things. You can make mistakes. We had such a great time working with each other. The crew that was there, met my wife there. Everything, the small little place influenced everything that came after it. And so wait, so you met Patty there. Patty's your wife. Uh-huh. Yep. Were you guys working together? Was this a known office romance? Was this more of like a... It was known later. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> Not <how> immediately. Does... <laughs> and at that time, were you the boss or were you... No, equal? I was, uh, I was uh, you know, higher ranking, but she wasn't in my department. So Got it. it was all legitimate. But eventually we told the executive director and, and he, I think he was so happy because he really wanted to be a matchmaker for people. We had, I at mean, one point we had- I mean, office romances. I mean, those are they like- They do. It's a, like, it's a place that so many people used to meet. And, yeah. um, but we had, and, and again, you know, like this was, everyone was, you know, appropriate, consensual. There was no harassment in the office, right? It, it was, there was more women than men. It was so this small number, but it's funny we had at one point 20 staff right we achieved our growth got to us to 20 staff and of those 20 eight of those people ended up getting married and are still married to this day wait so, eight of within the 20 wow within the 20 yes wow <laughs> so, so you guys have a good little group there <laughs> yeah no i mean we worked so hard we worked till like one in the morning on things you know it was just like the kind of thing where you socialize with you worked with and, because you spend yeah. so much time and if you're young and you have the ability and the capacity it's natural i think to oh yeah, grow yeah. Close so, with so we still have you know many of the people there become you know lifelong friends one of them moved to indiana and then in new york and then when she moved back she happened to move into our neighborhood going to the same school as our wow. kids so that was a funny you know. yeah it's great but um yeah you know i think you stage you evolve you know the, the level of friendships like when you're in your 20s those friendships are, are very tight because you're all learning experiencing things and your friendships are more uh, uh I, I don't think quite that intense when you get into your 40s and and beyond like your work friends are your work friends but you aren't necessarily going to be spending every waking moment with them because now you yeah. have kids and you have life right. 
and right. you probably have a different work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's always why. hard though for people, uh, and I know guys talk about this. I don't, I don't know how this is for women. My wife is very good at making friends, so I think maybe it's a bit different. But I've uh, I've seen it with my with male friends that it's hard for guys to make new friends after a certain age, mm-hmm. like high school, college. Those are really they cement your friendships, right? My college friends are still my best friends to this day. I have many great friends from high school, and I have made a smaller number. Of uh, over time of great friends from work. And, you know, while we may still be like, I really like a lot of the people I work with, you know, the question is, all right, so who would go on a trip with you? If you left that job, who would you be inviting on a trip? Right, right. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know it's not, it's not going to be as a percentage, like in a four year span, how many great friends I made in college. Yes. Uh, and versus, you know, the 20 some years of working, right? It's, uh, yeah, so it's just different. It is. I mean, you're right because my husband doesn't make friends. <laughs> he doesn't. I make friends, and then he'll be nice to some of them, <laughs> uh-huh. and then we'll make friends like that. Otherwise, at work is the only other relationships that he'll spend energy on, and then through mm-hmm. that, there's just natural camaraderie and friendships that build. But then those are his friends, are not necessarily our friends all the time. Uh, most of our friends are, I would say, at least ten years ago. Probably. Yeah, right. And don't you find that that when you make a couple of friends where you like the woman and he likes the man, or you like both the, you know, depending on if it's a you know same gender couple, right? You like both of them. Like that is the ultimate, right? You yes. want to like both the people. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. So those are those are the special ones. Like you 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 really work on those relationships because yes. you're because both happy being potential. around. Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Wait, there's, we could maybe become like really good friends down the road, but oh, yeah. it doesn't work for both people. You're right. It's not, it's never going to work. Right. Okay. Exactly. Oh, no. So we, we actually traveled. Uh, we took a trip last year for um, one of our neighbors. It was his birthday and we all flew out to Vegas, the four of us. And that was like a big test of like the friendship. Like, oh, wow, okay. Is this good? You know, how's that going to work? It's great. We had a great time because we really liked the same kinds of things. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, they're they're just terrific people. And you guys are at that age because you guys have adult working children. Yep, 28 and 26 years old. 28 and 26. And then you guys have the elementary school boys. Yep, 12 and 10. And so, so you, yeah, middle school. You know the age range here, right? Like of mm-hmm. parenting smaller kids, doing the work from home and then learning and yep. adjusting. And then you have the older kids who work, you kind of did your job there. <laughs> you kind right, of, right, right. They're exactly. on their own. <laughs> they have their own places, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. But they become much more your friends at that point, right? Like the way you socialize is very different. Um, you know, it's, it's actually a lot of fun. I think the point where you can drink with your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, legally and open openly is that big cutoff, right? Yeah. Where you guys can go out to bars and you enjoy yourselves with them in that way, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's something to always look forward to. It's uh, you go through those teenage years, which I think are a little rougher, right? In terms yeah. of them finding their own way, and then they kind of we've experienced the boomerang, you know, that they've come back to us as as you know really great uh, people in our lives, not just our kids. Did you guys go through a hard time when they were teenagers? Because you were also the stepdad right so how was that adjustment of blended family coming in you are a stepdad and now you have teenagers little people with brains and and mouths and really intelligent ways to talk back and get attitude (laughs) yeah we didn't have so much of the attitude they were really good i mean i've been with 
with Lindsay and Dylan since they were two and four, right? So they've always grown up and we've always had a blended family with their dad and their stepmom. But I, I think the one of the things is they're trying to find their own identity. The, the toughest one for them was us having kids. So Lindsay is, you know, a senior in high school. And let me hold on, I've had to do the math real quick. So 2009. So she's been yeah, it. So- she's been baby. She has been right at that point. Yeah, well, she's well. She was the only girl, and she kept the only girl because I had three boys. So that's what's always happy. But yeah, the attention was on her. There was like you know her and her brother, and and that was it. But then all of a sudden, we've got these these two kids, these little these little babies. I mean, and Shane was a baby during her senior year of high school. So I'm going to, and she was a, a, a top volleyball player. So we're going to these like important games. And I've got Shane and I'm swinging him in his, uh, in his carrier to kind of keep him to go to sleep or keep him quiet. Mason is like two years old or one and a half at that point. So, you know, it's not all about the, uh, it wasn't all about her. And as teenagers, you know, that's, there's a yeah. selfish streak, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, they were, never went far from us, but, you know, they were had their own identities, they had their own stuff going on. And certainly in those early 20s, they did as well. And now that they're more settled in their lives and have jobs, we see them more than ever. Not during quarantine, but, you know. I was going to uh, ask, are they quarantined so. with you guys? No, no, they're in their own places. Um, oh. But, uh, you know, we talk over uh, over Zoom. I think Lindsay and Patty talk every day. Yeah, and they're probably close to mother daughter. Yeah, you know. oh yeah, they're they're real tight. They're very they're best friends. So how did you know that Patty was the one? So she's at work. You know, you're working together, and she has two kids. What made you choose her? Um, every girl I, wants to know how every girl wants to a know. guy I, I, you found know, the one. Every girl yeah. in this world wants to know. How did you I, know she was the one? I think you know Patty and I are realistic about this. We never think that there's just one. Right. Like, you know, um, there could be there isn't just the perfect one. Right. It's so much about compromise. It's about saying, OK, who's the person you know I want to grow old with? Who's the person that can raise kids in the way that I can imagine doing that? Or I was always think about it. You know, she was the one for me because she was the person who made me better. She made me a much better person than I would have been without her. And uh, she brought out all the things in me that were maybe I think the truest version of me. Um, and what do you, uh, did she challenge you? Did she ask you questions? Did she try to get to know you more? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think, well, I never, I never, I personally, I never wanted to be with anyone who wouldn't call me out, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, yeah, someone's got to call me on any of my BS and, but also put up with any moodiness I have or anything like that. Right. But call me out on it. So that's, I think really important. Um, but I, I think, uh, like her caring, I'll give you just a quick example. Even though this is more recent, it was just, it, it's been a trend throughout our life. Like yeah. We were driving along, and, and this is during quarantine time here, isolation time. And we were going to our, our storage facility. We were moving a lot of her mom's stuff into one facility with our own, right? Mm-hmm. And on the way back, we see this older gentleman with a walker walking along the side of the road, but there's no sidewalk. And we're like, well, that's a little odd. And she's like, well, what if, you know, what if something's going on there? Like he could get hit by a car. You know, we want to, it wasn't a hugely trafficked area, but enough that, you know, yeah. it was dangerous. And so she convinced me at first, I'm like, uh, maybe I don't, you know, like, step into someone else's business, right? <laughs> I'm keeping on going. But she was the one that's like, no, we really ought to turn around and find out what's going there. 
And so we did, we went back and she got out and she went to talk to him and his English wasn't great. He was you know, an older Afghani gentleman. And, and then another woman stopped who had seen him before. And we ended up calling the police. He was trying to walk all the way to the grocery store, which was probably from there, like a mile, mile and a half okay. and called the police and the police came and the poor guy had been uh, walking out of his house and trying to head to the grocery store like five times in the last 24 hours. Oh. And I think the rest of his family members were working or something. They weren't there. And you, but I just like that, man, that's the kind of thing where that's I'm like, Patty. Yeah, okay, right. That's her. That's what like makes me think that way. I would, probably would not have thought that way if I had not been around her. Yeah. So, you know, challenged my beliefs. She had slightly different beliefs in some things than I did. And through debate and conversation, you know, we just, we've, we've melded a little bit, you know, she's taken on some of my viewpoints and I've taken on some of hers, that's for sure. Yeah, and just, you know, like being around each other and you make each other laugh and, and basically can you forgive each other and move on from any kind of conflict or challenges, right? Like Is that, that the secret thing. of marriage? Are you giving us the secret of marriage right now? I don't know if that, I don't know <laughs> if I know the secret. I know the secret for my marriage is definitely like, you know, you can't just be a hard liner. I, I think people who, I think it's tougher too, if you've lived alone for a while, right? You're a little bit older and you think about getting married, I'll be like, I'd be stuck in my ways. I don't know if I could get married again, right? If, if, yeah. You know, if I wasn't married now, I don't know because I would be, you know, sort of settled. But I also didn't grow up. I had no brothers and sisters. So I was used to being an only child. So there's a lot of uh, selfishness in me from that or, or wanting my own space. And, you know, Patty likes more chaotic, family full environment. So I've gotten very used to that and have started to enjoy that. Although yeah. sometimes I will disappear into the basement to recharge, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I have no secrets to, to what, what makes a great marriage, except for I do think you just have like, if you're a an optimistic person and you can compromise with someone else and deal with stuff directly and not, you know, harbor resentments or any of that, that yeah. can, it could work out. I don't know. I feel, I feel blessed. And you guys have been married now how many years? Um, uh, almost 18. That's crazy. That's almost 20. You guys have a 20. <laughs> I, know. I know. My parents have been married, you know, what, uh, 50, 50 years now. That's a beautiful it's like, God, thing. I know. It's like, uh, boy, that's, that's, you know, seems like so long, but it, it, 18 yeah. years hasn't seemed like 18 years, although a lot's been in that 18. It goes by. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And your parents, are they doing good right now throughout the whole? Yeah. Program? They're, they're, they're isolating. They're near us, but they're, we haven't seen them. Uh, we yeah. just talked to them once a week. So are they taking it seriously? Are they kind of? Oh, very seriously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mom's been waiting for this for years. <laughs> she, she said this was coming. She was all ready. She had her N95 mask. Uh, oh, she's been know, ready. Years ago. Yeah. Oh, she's been ready, ready for this. She has yeah. her stockpile. and <laughs> Right. And she's not, she's much more of an introverted person uh, and you're really not out there in crowds. So this hasn't changed her lifestyle all that much. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, let's go into Creating IT Futures. Creating IT Futures is a nonprofit workforce charity for CompTIA, which is the voice of the IT industry. So our interest is on helping the individuals who want to work in the IT industry get the training and the certification and those front-end skills and requirements they need to be um, eligible to work in a entry-level IT role. So we provide training, we provide certification, uh, coaching and lessons. We also provide um, insight from market research and then we partner with companies and also governments across the country to help people in different cities become trained and then able to work in those 
information technology roles. So we have our IT Ready program, which was the, I would say, flagship program of, of creating IT futures in the beginning. It's an eight-week fast-track training program, similar to an IT boot camp that gets adults trained in IT within eight weeks, and it gets them the ability to get certified with CompTIA's A-plus certification. Now, that program this past year is being converted to a full-time technical education academy, and it's being called CompTIA Tech Career Academy. And the first uh, course is similar to how IT was run, eight weeks, full-time. Right now, because of COVID-19, all classes are being taught online, but we still have applications. So individuals throughout the country, no matter where you live, if you're 18 years or older and you pass the basic entry-level uh, testing requirements, so that's having simple math and reading and English requirements, um, and we do a front-end test for that. But if you pass that and you have a diploma or a GED, you're eligible to be a part of the IT Ready training program, which is now called CompTIA Tech Career Academy. So for any information about these programs, you guys can go to the website and get all of this information. So let's talk about your role there, CEO of you know all of our philanthropic endeavors. Uh, and then we've had a lot of initiatives in this last year alone with the Tech Girls acquisition. We've had the transition with CompTIA Tech Career Academy and IT Ready. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the the, the uh, challenging thing about running any kind of charitable organization now is is you've got to tie in what your mission is, and then how can you make money to do that mission, right? How can you raise money or make money? And you know, fundraising is hard, as you well know. Right. And you're in deep on this and you get a lot more no's than you get yeses. Um, so I think you know, one of the things we've engineered uh, is is a process to get us to the point where we're making our own money. So we're not as reliant upon pure fundraising. You know, we just want to have a lot of buckets of funding coming in. So mm-hmm. while we have, you know, fundraising on outside organizations, CompTIA gives us some money, but it's only about a quarter of our budget. And, you know, now we're you know looking at this CompTIA Tech Career Academy as a place where uh, a lot of grants and a lot of scholarships, uh, uh, you know, for people to go through the program, but some people will be paying at least some portion of it. All of these things kind of add up to where you could say, yeah, we can do X, Y, and Z. As part of our mission, because that's the that's the funding we have. So our dreams are always going to be bigger than what our wallet uh, allows us to do. But I think it's a matter of building and growing. I mean, you know, when I started, we had three full time staff. You know, it wasn't but like four years ago that we had six, uh, and now we're at forty two. So because some, some great things can happen, you have to get a little bit lucky at times. Have to hit hit the mark. Uh, you know, try a lot of different things. So a lot of experimentation. Yeah, we're trying to trying to grow and impact more people. And that's really what it is. It's never about ego of having a big organization. It's around having the most impact you can if you feel that what you're doing is really important. And clearly we do. What I'm interested, Charles, to hear your perspective on is how you were able to see the need for this. Because a few years ago, college was really the main training option for technical education. And that has quickly shifted. And even just this last year and a half, the need has become more so known, but it was kind of taboo. It was really, really the the 
other option, not necessarily the, the sought out option. So I wanted you to speak on that and the changing landscape of tech education and why having a short-term training program is beneficial. Yeah, you're right that things have changed. You know, I'm not sure that the general mindset that we've really gotten away from college still being the highest level of attainment that, you know, that's what I want to do. I think especially parents are still very focused on that. And rightfully so. I mean, you look through most of the last 50 years, you know, people were told, well, you have to go to college to have the best jobs. And so to tell people and to tell parents, no, that's no longer true. It's like, wait, hold on. Wait, Are you what? just trying to keep yeah. me out of that, you know, side, right? Especially for communities of color. That's a very tough message to say all the things that they were told they need to because do and to try to achieve. Up until this point, that has been the only message, truly. Right. Is right. you're going to college, and anything else is not an option. Right, that's right. not what you Second work for. Second tier, it won't yeah. get you. And, and still, the, the you know the the economics tell you that people who go to college will earn more. All of that. It is starting to shift, at least in tech, uh, where you know the 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 kinds of uh, boot camp training programs that we've put together. Um, that also exist in the software and the coding space have been kind of shortcutting people into the job. And, and, and our core belief on that was that people didn't need a lot to get the entry level job, that so much around the tech world is learning while you're on the job. Yeah. But you need a foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we wanted to work with populations that, you know, weren't interested in software development, maybe couldn't pass some of the initial uh, tests, you know, or whatever it is that they do to get into those jobs. And that, but they still wanted to be in IT and they really wanted to work more with their hands. They really wanted to be more problem solvers, helping people. It's a very different uh, mindset than, than working on coding. And so uh, along with a few other nonprofits and, and a couple of training programs, you know, we created that program to tackle tech support, right? As the great entry level that leads to so many other things. And we felt like it's really possible to do it in eight weeks and, and we've proven that out. So, you know, the the academy that we've now formed to house the IT ready technical support program. Um, you know, we, we will be growing and advancing in there on the kinds of courses that we offer, but all of that same idea that things shouldn't take forever. Yeah. You know, four years is too long. You need to upskill, but maybe you need to upskill while you're working. So we need, may need to have a course that's better designed for you there. And, you know, then maybe you're out of work and you really need an intense eight week everyday camp experience. And we have that for you as well. So while we're starting small, it's, uh, it's exciting. We just announced that we are available uh, for online training in 32 U.S. states. So that's going to really open things up to uh, a much wider swath when before we were only in seven U.S. cities. You know, So right now, we are offering grants to people based on certain uh, demographics and requirements that they have. So there's, there are offerings and, and financial aid possibilities for, for people. Absolutely. Okay. COVID-19 is altering the way that school's happening and even the way that students and parents are thinking about college next year. When it comes to technical education, what are some things to keep in mind via an online option if it exists for, for colleges? or come to a tech career academy? You know, it should never be an either or, right? Like I, there was so much value to a broad-based education. Um, you know, did my education in high school and college prepare me to think? Absolutely. It taught me a whole lot of things aside from a skill set. Would I have liked to have known at that time back in the late 80s and early 90s, like if someone had said, hey, you know what? You should also take these classes that will get you technical knowledge. Um, I probably, you know, now I would look back and go, I should have jumped on that, right? But that wasn't sort of how things were structured. So I think it, 
it'd be really terrific if schools were combining this. And some are, you know, like, oh, you go to a, a certain school and then there might be a boot camp program in a technical thing that you add on for a semester. Um, you know, I think they're starting to, to make some adjustments, but it, you know, the field that I guess the, the area of education that we're fulfilling right now is that more immediate need to get a job. Like, all right, I've got bills to pay. I, I've, you know, gone through college and I, I want to jump in and right away get work, but I have no experience. We're doing that sort of, uh, you know, here's your first job. This is the prep for it. And we're really building your confidence. That's, that's so much of what we do in these classes, build your confidence. Because maybe you know, most of the people who come to us have never worked in IT. Maybe they're slightly interested, but they didn't think they could do it. They hadn't just they hadn't gone down that uh, path yet. So you know, when you see this, uh, you know, it's not it's truly not an either or. Those people, I would encourage many of them to go and continue to learn and whatever you want. I think of it like fanatical learning. That's what we have to be. We have to be fanatical learners all the time. You know, the, the, the world moves very quickly. Uh, skills that have to be changed and new things have to be adapted to. So why not always be learning? Why does college have to be a four-year consecutive experience? Mm-hmm. That's just a very outmoded way of thinking about college. And frankly, even now, the people who experience that, it's the colleges that people know of, the name brand schools, where that might be your experience. But most people aren't going to those schools. They're experiencing yeah. college in a very different way. And it's not happening in a linear way. No, It's come in, come out, go back out. So that's great. Like, why not? I mean, there's just should be options for everyone. You know? And uh, I, I don't know if people are aware of the options right now, though. I think in our work, yeah. we know of the people that are aware of it because that's who we work with, right? We work in the community, we work in the groups, and we work with the agencies who are looking in this space. But there is more room for awareness to larger audiences about, hey, this does exist. There is a short-term training opportunity for you to get your foot in the door of a technical position that maybe is similar to another vocation you were thinking of. You still use your hands. You still are problem solving. You still are able to help people. You're just transferring skills and capacity you didn't think you had the ability to do before. Um, right, and for right. those, Especially people, customer service skills, right? I mean, yeah. we, we've seen this. It's like or the ability to work with people. Yes, it's absolutely. I mean, anyone from food service, hospitality, they're learning things in those fields that absolutely apply to technology fields as well. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of parallels. And truly don't always understand the education opportunities available, at least in a short term, that are available. And this is one of them. And CompTIA Tech Career Code is an option. It is a short term mm-hmm. training option. And it does help you get your foot in the door in as little mm-hmm. as you know, three months, you can do that. I think that's an important uh, message to get across and for people to be aware of that this does, it, it does exist, actually. It does. Right, exist. right, exactly. Great program. A lot of people are getting a lot of benefit from it. I think going forward, it'll play a, a very important role for more people who are looking for other options as the current workforce is, is going through a transition. Right, absolutely. So that's the ultimate test, not how many people pass the certification necessarily, but how many people get jobs. That's what we measure ourselves on. Mm-hmm. Can people get jobs? Then that means that this could work, right? There's no guarantees of getting a job, but they, that's how we look at the measurement. And, and that's how schools should be measured, I think, especially ones that do what we do, is are they good at doing what they say they can do, which is get you ready for work? Do you have a favorite success story? Is there a favorite? Because with Charles, what 
people don't know. So he's CEO of Creating IT Futures, but he tries his best to go to every single graduation if he could make it. Uh, and so he's personally seen um, all of the students who've come through our program, at least through LinkedIn, he makes a connection, but he is always trying to get that individual connection and, and understanding the journey of the students who are coming through the program and what their story is. Do you have any that stick out to you? Any favorite yeah. or like proud it, moment? It's like your first time, right? Your, your first class, that's your that, that's often someone's favorite, I think, and it's mine. And so it was a small class, it was up in Minnesota. And you know, there's a lot of good stories in that class. Uh, you know, one gentleman was delivering pizzas and he thought maybe pizza delivery would still be better than doing all of this. And now he's like a big security, cybersecurity guy, right? So if I <laughs> talked to him now and laughed about the pizza thing, I'm sure he'd find it funny. But um, one gentleman in particular, he had had a really rough time, company uh, folded, making it was a plastic, plastic injection molding factory. And it went under, and this is right after the recession. And he was running out, I think it had been 18 months unemployed. He was serving in the Army National Guard, but he just couldn't convince anyone that he had the right skills to do you know, what he wanted. He really wanted to be in IT. And, and so he'd run his benefits were about to run out and he saw an advertisement for our program he was very skeptical how could this be true how could you know get the cost and all that kind of stuff right how could this be real and he went in and he you know he got into the class and he's accepted and, and then when he left you know a couple months later we landed a job we made a connection with a local employer convinced them to start working with us they met him and he's well what eight years later he's still there and i think he's been promoted six times last time I looked at his LinkedIn. It's about six times. I just checked in with him actually the other day to see how he's doing because he he runs all the technical uh, aspects of a hospital mm -hmm. um, in Wisconsin and uh, and a health center. So I wanted to see you know how they were doing. Wow. Uh, but yeah, that's one of those stories. Like right where that guy you know and his kids now are interested in IT. Right? Yeah. It's like it's had this how could they not? Effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hope, right? But you see dad's passion, you know, for it and all that he sacrificed and the hard work he put in to get that point. I just love the stories of people. There's a gentleman also in Minnesota who he would work at UPS from like midnight to six and he would nap after he came home and then he'd wake up and do that. And he was never late for class. He'd never miss a class for eight straight weeks. And, and now he's a, you know, an entrepreneur. He's uh, running his own business. So he worked for other companies and now he's uh -huh. built up enough knowledge and he has his own business. So yeah. I love seeing the story like that. So one of the things that is great about the program is its ability to instill confidence. I can do this. This is a skill I can learn. I can I can get through. There's people here to help. And we talk about that a lot, overcoming the confidence gap. And I know from me, I'm not working in the technical position, but I know just from my career adjustment as a professional, even talking to you, I, I'll share this story if you don't mind publicly with people, but I was talking to Charles about about a year and a half ago. And we're just talking about just career, my thoughts. And I'm like, but these people are so much smarter than me. And this is an area in which I don't know. And I was just really unsure, really doubtful, really hesitant. And in this private conversation, he's like, Andrea, he's like, you know, they're not better than you. And then I heard those words and it rested with me because I felt that like, oh, they're not better. They do know more than me, actually. And they do have more experience in these areas. But it doesn't mean that they're better than me. That one phrase, you have no idea the impact it made for 
from from my lens of being able to just put myself out there like okay i might not be this that or other but that's okay because it's not better i am still able to contribute and give something and i think that's part of overcoming the confidence gap is just having that other voice in your head that says this is something you can do and here's the way this is the path we've made to show you how it's manifested or how you can actually do that yeah i guess my job is done here if also i have to tell people is that other people aren't better than them that's awesome <laughs> I, just for me I, there's people like me who need to hear that yeah. specific thing but i think for others it might be different maybe it is more of a technical hey i don't know this skill but i have the ability to to know that i i can learn and right. sometimes it's just as simple as having someone else in your corner who you trust and believe who who is on your side yeah no it's so true and, and, and you know i've always used that sort of better than not to be intimidated of course if i met bill gates i would be totally intimidated because i look <laughs> like up you're, to him you're better than me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, you are way better. You're smarter. You're wealthier. You've done more to impact society, yeah. like everything, right? So yeah, that would be a tough one. I think in most cases, it's like, you know, people have flaws, you know, and so much is depending on when you got into something or you know, how long you've been doing it. I mean, you know, I never thought I would be an expert in workforce issues. Yeah, there's nothing in the first part of my career that told me later I'd be an expert in workforce. But I think of myself as a problem solver. And that's that was a problem that needed solving. You know, we saw that that was not working really great, and we felt like we could contribute something new or expand on some ideas that are already out there and really make those resonate. And mm -hmm. so that's really all it was. And, you know, it's just, I think anytime people are problem solvers, <clears throat> they can go and figure out how to do that. You know, with, like we didn't know how to build uh, this CompTIA Tech Career Academy. It's a, you know, it's a very different thing than when we were just doing boot camps. But we got smart people around. You know, Adam was uh, on our team, was one of the people who had this vision that this academy could be something really beneficial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so he, you know, I gave him the opportunity to build it. And, uh, and then everyone on that team has been learning new roles, you know. Mm -hmm. No one knew what a bursar was. We all heard it. Anyone who went to college heard a bursar. We didn't know what that was, right? It's like all these things we've learned. Um, we didn't know anything about working with, uh, you know, high schools or working with middle school girls. Well, we acquired tech girls and they, you know, joined us and became part of our team. And we've learned so much about those relationships that that you can have in as a role model for kids or guiding them as a volunteer, right? There's a mm -hmm. whole bunch of things. So it's just always constantly, like I said before, that fanatical, always learning challenging yourself. And is it that fanatical learning concept that causes you to be like, I'm going to listen to Adam's idea. Actually, this might be a good idea. He has this vision and I'm going to listen because I'm, I'm a fanatical learner and I'm interested. Or mm -hmm. does it take a little bit more coaxing? Do you need a little bit more like numbers in order to get on board with the vision? How do you identify and agree with vision as a CEO and you have a team of people under you? That's one thing you're constantly having to navigate and prioritize is what is the focus? What is where are we going? And how are we getting there? And how do you decide that? Yeah, it's, um, it's never easy. You know, my style is not to be the sole holder of the vision. Uh, you know, and I, I, if you remember a few months ago, I talked about this at one of our staff meetings is that ultimately the vision of the organization is going to come through all the ideas of the people who are actually doing the work on the ground and see the impact and see the things that don't work. Like a great example, uh, you know, Sue saw that many of our, our applicants weren't able to read at the 10th grade level. We know that impact their ability to get a job, to pass the certification, or even to enter our program. And so she had this idea there should be a training, a training for them. Like, what can we do to get, to build the literacy and numeracy knowledge of, of that 
population that we're seeing. And so, you know, we challenged Eric on the team to come up with something and he quickly did. And then we had the IT core skills program that, you know, we're, we're piloting right now and, and figuring out how to, uh, to make that the most effective. So that's, you know, you, the ideas are going to bubble up. And then it's a matter of, okay, is that ours to do? So knowing who you are as an organization is super important. Uh, you, you work so closely with me on creating our document that outlines our purpose and our mission and our personality. And so we always want to stay true to that, right? You mm-hmm. got to make that pitch. So I love seeing numbers and I love the, the gut. I love the passion. Because sometimes if the numbers are there, someone's passion is going to be the thing that drives it. But, you know, clearly if there's no opportunity or we don't, things could be very complicated. We kind of call it like the uh, the agony index, right? When we're measuring uh, one project against another. Like how hard is this one to do? Mm-hmm. And how hard is it relative to the, the gain? You know, are we going to impact lots of people? Will this help us raise lots of money? What is this going to do? So you've got to take into account all of those things. But the agony index is one of those very subtle ones because some things sound okay and then you realize how complicated they're going to be. Yeah. How are you going to force other people to, to make a change? Like people changing away from the status quo, right? Your enemy is always the status quo, whether you're yeah. selling, trying to change behaviors or anything like that. So are we going to be able to control enough of our destiny or are we going to be relying upon others? And, you know, that helps me make those decisions. But, you know, some are clear things like tech girls. We've been talking for quite a while and it just felt like, wow, they have something great that fits so beautifully with our culture as well. We really wanted to, to be able to take that to the to the next level. Yes. And Tech Girls is a another program of, of ours that specifically outreaches to middle school girls who want to get exposed, want some hands-on training workshops. And so now all of these workshops are virtual. So if you have a middle school girl, you can go to our website, www.creatingitfutures.org or to www.techgirls.org and find more information on the upcoming virtual classes. It is free and the classes are virtual. So they just sign on, register, and it teaches hands-on specific technical skills with instructors who are also leading the the workshop virtually. Right. Yeah. We hope that many of them go on to be technologists as a career, but you know, they're in middle school, right? Right. They're middle school. We're inspiring them. We want to build confidence. Yeah. That stays with people, right? So as long as they're engaging, I think that's the first step is just the engagement factor. One other thing I wanted to ask you, when you hire someone as a CEO and now they're in your interview face and you already know they have the pedigree for the job or they wouldn't be there. You already know that they're qualified um, and that they have some of those basic um, skills that you look for of having hunger and showing intelligence and showing openness. What makes you choose that person? What makes you leave an interview and say, that was a great candidate. Has anyone stuck out to you? And if so, what did they do to make you remember them? Yeah, Yeah, I think, um, you know, I just want that feeling like this is someone I can work with and be around a lot. So it's kind of an energy feel some of the time. Does this person have positive energy? Do they, do they, can you tell from their story that they have that humility? Again, one of the traits that we look for. But, But I think so much is like, can you see yourself working every day with this person? There was a study a number of years ago done by Duke and Harvard on who you want to work with in a, in a company, right? So obviously everyone wants to work with the stars as they identify the people who are both competent and likable. Yeah. And no one wants to work with the unlikable person who's not competent, right? So that's no. easy. That person gets gone from a company pretty fast. 
Yeah. But the hard one was, do you work with the person who's not so great at their job, but they're really likable? Or the person who's really great at, who's very good at their job, but they're not likable? And so they asked that. And most people said, well, we want to work with a person who knows what they're doing because it's just about the business. And then they found, tried to figure out who do they actually work with in a company? And it was the opposite. People maximized the talent of the likable people who weren't as competent and strong, and they avoided the unlikable person, right? So I really look for likability because this is, again, someone who I could put in front of other people that they're going to engage with them great, uh, not a person who's going to lose their temper, you know? And I think you could tell sometimes, you can get fooled by people clearly in interviews, but I think it's just that good feeling like, is this a person who seems to care mm -hmm. and is a very mission-focused individual? And, you know, I, I look for that. I, I don't want to be best friends with everyone I work with. So it's okay if they're very different. Yeah. But it's like, do I feel like I could, you know, get into battle? And, you know, certainly this pandemic has put us in a spot where I look at my crew and I go, man, I got a lot of people I'm happy to be in battle with here right now. We're being smart. We're figuring things out. We're so innovative. And that's the right, that's that little thing around people. You know, can you, you know, can you get them to, can you figure out an interview if you're going to want to be down in the, in the trenches with them? Mm -hmm. um, when you're interviewing, you just have to make yourself that person, right? Like when you're being interviewed, you have to be, you know, is this, am I going to be a person who this person is going to want to work with? It's, it's, it's always about like, what are you doing? I don't think people think about this enough is that, you know, when they're getting the job, they're trying to impress somebody. But you know, what you're trying to do is not, not impress somebody. It's trying to be show that, you know, you're going to be a consistent person that you're just going to be thinking about them. It's not going to be all about you once you get on the job. Mm -hmm. Oh, now I've got the job and it's going to be about, you know, well, you should do this for me and this. It's like, hey, how are you how are you being a partner to whoever you're going to work for or the company? You're going to be likable and you're going to be adding value, right? It's yeah. not just coming in and doing your job, but how are you going to add value? So you got to think with that mindset. I look for self-awareness because I look for, does someone know that they're hungry? Does someone know that they can, that they trust others, right? So there's a level of self-awareness I want to see in somebody. So we don't put that on the, on our internal sheet, Yeah, but that comes from that, right? Like I can work with people who are self-aware. If people think differently about that, or they don't really analyze their situations, or they don't understand the mistakes they've made and why that's gotten them to where they are right now, or the positive things they've done that's gotten them to where they are, then it's going to be harder to coach because you're not going to really understand your cause and effect of your life. You know, you hear these stories. I've done the interviews with people where you know we do ask a lot of behavioral interview questions, and I find that people who aren't ones who I think would be a fit with us or when I see that, you know, they haven't gotten along with everybody, right? They might have great peer-to-peer -peer relationship, but they never tell you a good boss story, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, they talk about, you know, ways, uh, I had someone talk about ways they got around their boss, went behind his <laughs> back. And, you know, I'm like, that's not a really great story not, not because now I'm going to be your boss. And, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> it's not going to be great. So I think, you know, transparency is always important too. Really understanding what what worked or what didn't in your last job. Certainly never talking badly, but being realistic about the situations that you encountered. You know, what was your fault in that and what was their fault? Because it's rarely one-sided. I mean, sometimes you hear those stories and yeah, people have a bad situation and they need to get out or a bad company. But most of the time, you know, we all do, we, we do something that gets us moved along and the company does something that makes us want to move on. So I think it was kind of like that self-awareness combined with the transparency 
Um, and, and you know, this, you know, it's been one of my philosophies for a while, but like, I want to be transparent with our team. So I think if I got an employee who's being fairly transparent, then they'll be very, very receptive to me being transparent Yes. Uh, about, you know, what we do in the process. And they could just be realistic, like, okay, you know, this is how it works. And I get it. You know, we've dealt with this during uh, the COVID-19 stuff, right? You know, have our weekly meetings where we're talking about what's going on, what we're having to do, how our, our fundraising is dropped off now as many people shift funding to you know, more health related and which is really related things, you know, that's another conversation in and of itself is the struggle that a lot of nonprofits are going to have right now developing and sustaining funds when a lot of the priority for funding is going to and rightly so right, we're in the middle of a pandemic, it should go towards health and uh, yep. but there is a need for funding and a priority on that discussion of of nonprofits who are still needing to fundraise and develop money with, you know, philanthropic dollars, what that looks like now and how that has changed and how that is actually a, a different struggle that a lot of organizations are facing or even people in similar uh, work roles to mine on a development and how, what are some strategies and tips that we can do on that front. But that's different. Uh, but you're yeah, raising yeah, yeah. a really good point there. I mean, a lot of nonprofits are going to go under right now. Yeah. They're not going to be able to survive during this time because funding will shift, priorities will shift. You know, they, I mean, get why we tried to diversify our revenue streams so that we could survive anything mm -hmm. um, that were to happen. And, but a lot are just aren't in that spot. We're in a really good spot in that way that we can, we can go on for a little while. I would love to be in a better spot. Absolutely. Because I think the work that we're doing is not going to stop being important. No. More people than ever, you know, since the recession are going to need to get back into, into jobs. And many of them should be choosing tech as a, as a career because it's going to be a bit more stable. Girls are still going to need to be inspired. We can't stop inspiring girls so that we can fill this gap. I mean, we're at like, you know, 22% of technical careers are filled by women right now across all aspects of tech. Gosh, we need to get that to 50%, you mm. know, so there's a lot of work to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone's making choices. You know, we have the arts, you have social services, you have animals, you have the environment. It's so hard for individuals and foundations and organizations like companies that do corporate support to to find out what they're going to do. Yeah. And um, you know, and then they're hearing from us all the time, people like us, about how our stuff is the most important. Or you know, this is very tough. It's very tough to be a funder. And we did some funding when I first got here, and I re recognize it's very challenging to make a decision. And is it harder when you manage a mostly remote team? Right. So when you onboard and then you bring people on, most of our team works remote across the U.S. Is that play a factor in your decision where they live? I, I think the, the, the trend will definitely be that people are going to stop thinking you have to be geographically located near other people to, in order to do a job. Mm -hmm. I think we're definitely going to see a, 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 that change. We've often thought that way too. And, you know, we've hired people uh, in cities where we didn't have any activity, you know. Um, so we've been trying to look for that. Sometimes we do have to have someone on the ground in a, in a mm -hmm. community, right? It's yeah. absolutely necessary. It's important, yeah. Right. But in other jobs, it's not. And that way it opens up, you can get really some of the best people. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's hard when you don't have a, a strong culture as an organization to bring people in from the outside. How are you going to integrate them if they're all virtual? Yeah. Uh, but we've got a pretty strong culture, I would say, right now. We know who we are. It's imbued within everyone. We have documents that share. We have a training regimen internally on how you're going to learn our leadership practices and all of that. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it's a little bit easier uh, than it was maybe four or five years ago to join 
enjoying this. But you know, being virtual is never simple. I've enjoyed it. I probably didn't enjoy it that much my first couple of years, to be honest. I really missed having the people around. And while I still miss that interaction, I've gotten much more used to it. And you know, I have good connections with uh, at least you know with my direct reports and hopefully down the yeah. chain as well. And technology helps with that. I mean, the beauty, that's yeah. the beauty of Zoom, right? As much as we can get Zoom fatigue sometimes, I think that is the beauty of Zoom is we have the ability to still have continual check-ins. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're going to, yeah, right. You said, so we're going to get that Zoom fatigue, you know, we'll go back to some calls and no video, but you know, we're always connected, right? And, and anyone can call me, Adam calls me all the time, like late at night, you know, whatever. I'll ignore his calls sometimes. Sometimes I'll take them, you know, much to my wife's chagrin. So. Charles is the CEO. He's like, call me in all of our teams. Call me call me, just talk <laughs> yeah. to me because he's Someone. accessible, which is one of the most, you know, this is something that a lot of um, employees, I think I can relate to it for sure. You don't want to go to people, especially your boss or your boss's boss or anybody perceived above you. You never want to go to higher levels and talk about personal issues or talk about things that are bothering you. Or um, even if it's a fellow coworker, like that's a very tricky mm-hmm landscape to navigate when you have, you know, a hierarchy of people. I think that's one thing that I appreciate about the culture that is there within creating IT futures is the ability to talk to whoever we need to talk to whenever we need to talk um, and that the door is open and the open communication is there and it's, it's constantly wanted because I think that makes a huge difference in everybody else's ability to have good morale, open trust, which is important for any team. And then also just clarity of goal and vision and, and keeping focused with what the current priorities are. Right, right. I think I'm, I'm glad you see that because, you know, it's a it's a hard balance, right? You don't want to, there's a hierarchy for a reason and you have to respect the hierarchy. Um, you know, there is that things have to happen in a certain way just to keep the machine moving, but we mm-hmm. don't want the hierarchy to be the thing that holds us back from growth or feedback or understanding ourselves and me understanding challenges that are out there. Right. But I think, you know, my key part of my job is to provide clarity, right? Clarity priorities. And, you know, so we, through direct communication, you know, that's the main easiest way to do it, right? Like I tell you exactly what I'm thinking. People call me and say, what about this? What about that? Have you thought about this? Or I don't quite understand that. And, you know, that helps me clarify my vision or my uh, set of expectations even better. So it's got to be a two-way street, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it's fine. It's fine that most people don't call me. I totally get it. Um, because you're going to call me probably when there's a challenge or you have something interesting to talk about, right? People don't want to feel like they're wasting my time. And I totally get that. But, yeah. you know, anyone could call me and talk about a TV show or a movie. <laughs> All right, Charles. Well, thank you for taking time. I appreciate you for coming on. Really quick website, Creating IT Futures, www.creatingitfutures.org. And then we have Tech Girl's website. I'm going to put all of this information um, on the website and I'll also have links, but I appreciate you for coming on, Charles. Thank you. Glad to see you. This is really fun. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.